So feel free to grab any snacks or those bathrooms are open if you guys need one. Um, but I'm going to be sharing a word today on hearing God's voice. And yes, I will not repeat a ton, um, but just really briefly, last week we did kind of outline a bunch of kind of some core identity pieces that I think um, as we look back over the last three or so years as a church, a couple core identity markers of our church community and even distinctives that we feel like a strong value for and what discipleship looks like in the modern age or maybe any age. And I think two things that have come up are um, hearing God's voice, that disciples of Jesus are people who hear the Father's voice through the Spirit, follow Jesus, led by the Spirit. We talked about that last week a little from Romans 8. And then um, people who participate. So it's hearing and then it's obeying. It's people who participate in uh, kingdom mischief. And next week, Matt's going to share a message on engaging people and kingdom mischief. And in many ways, I think last week, this week, and next week are almost like after three years looking back, reflecting a descriptive like Karam Deo 101. Like, What's the vision? What are we trying to do? Um, we've, we've gone out of our way and probably been awkwardly slow to like prescribe what our church is or what it looks like or when we meet or what the rhythms are for these last three years. And as we've started kind of initiating the summer, I think we're finally moving into a phase of a little bit more clarity of like directing out of experiences that, I mean, we could all go around and tell stories and share tons of stories that we've had together um, in community, with Jesus, with on mission in different capacities and ways. And so today, this message is on hearing God's voice. And um, as John said, we're really fancy now, guys. We have a podcast. Um, I almost hope no one listens to it except the people in the church. Um, but I, I just simply, we had recorded some stuff in the past, but it was always kind of clunky. And so um, I started an official podcast page, so I think I sent the link, and they'll be embedded on the church website under Sundays, but then uh, it's in the process of getting validated by iTunes, so it'll just be available on any podcasting platform, and the main hope of that is, like, to relieve, you know, the sense of being disconnected if you miss, so during these gathered seasons when we meet for four, five, six, seven times in a row, um, if you're gone a couple, you can, like, get caught up and actually follow along. And then when we scatter out in that scattered season, we might even use that platform as a space to like give a 10 minute word or a 10 minute um, encouragement and maybe invite different people from the community. So it's it's a way you could stay connected to others, even if you're in separate home groups or D groups or learning communities in the fall and spring. So um, if there's anyone Yes. Mo's the email queen. That was my plug. And we promise to never spam you. At most, you'll get like one email a week. And if you ever want to be removed, just text me or respond to the email and say, hey, can you take me off this? No hard feelings. Um, unoffendable hearts. So, um, yeah, so the big, the big thing that we're kind of inviting the community into um, Another kind of core thing that we've stumbled upon in the last years is this idea of a rule of life. And so going into the fall, what we're kind of 
expecting and inviting everyone in the church to be doing in August here is prayerfully discerning uh, what you're going to commit to for the three, four months this fall. And the framework we're offering is kind of language we've used for years now, but it's the language of the three loves. So as you look at your time, as you look at your resources, as you look at your schedules, we're inviting you to kind of pray through the lens of the three loves of loving God, loving community, loving the world. So loving God, this is like devotional spaces. This is spiritual discipline, spiritual practices, loving community. These are what we traditionally think of as church spaces. It's when you're gathering with other friends and people who follow Jesus with you, right? And then we have loving the world. And this is the more missional spaces where you're looking beyond the fuzzy boundaries of the church formally um, or in a cultural sense. And, you know, it's your vocation and it's the new relationships that you're engaging and initiating outside of the church family. Um, So inviting us all to prayerfully discern how are we like engaging all three of those together and in reality we all know that those three are not like separate it's not like oh here's my loving god time and then i go over here and now i'm loving people right we know we know from matthew 25 that jesus is like no no whatever you do to the least of these or whatever however we treat people is a devotion to god so but we separate them to talk about them and then put them back together So today we're going to dive into two kind of scriptures and then I'm going to share some stories, hopefully have some good laughs, maybe a couple tears, we'll see. Um, But I'm going to be sharing starting in 1 Samuel 3 and then we'll be ending in Romans 8 where we were last week. And and my hope really, this isn't going to be like a how-to practical of this is how you hear God. Um, my hope is actually to spark fresh faith in all of our lives that like this is what the Christian life is fundamentally about. Like hearing God's voice, intimacy and relationship with him, um, and the reality of God becoming like, becoming laying bare in our lives. So, and yes, so I'll start and we're going to read, I'm just going to read the uh, first 10 verses of 1 Samuel 3. So this is the stage in Israel's history. They've come out of the Exodus, out of Egypt. Moses led them out, passed into the Promised Land. We had those crazy books of Joshua and Judges, if anyone's ever read those. And now we are at 1 Samuel, so we're entering the age of the kings. And um, there is not a king in Israel yet. They're kind of these dispersed family clans all um, all over these different regions. Uh, And they have, they don't yet have a temple. They have kind of this like, it's in between like a building and a tent. Um, They call it, here's the author and Samuel refers to it as um, the house of the Lord. So it's functioning like a temple. So that's where we're picking up. And this woman, Hannah, has just given birth to a son named Samuel, which means God hears. And she's kind of committed him to the service of the Lord, meaning... It'd be like if when you were born, your parents had already decided you were going to be a priest, a Catholic priest or something. So they had, he's been committed to, quote, religious service for the rest of his life from birth. So he's here, verse, chapter three, verse one. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli, who was the current functioning priest. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. Uh, The word there is like precious. It's hard to find. So people weren't getting the word of the Lord. They weren't hearing God. 
there were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord. So, a little context here. Samuel, this he's a boy. He's probably 10 years old, and he's sleeping in the temple. So that'd be like, again, going to like a Roman Catholic church and sleeping in the sanctuary. And there was this, this thing in ancient cultures, they called it incubation, where if you wanted to receive a vision or a revelation, or if you wanted to hear from like the gods, you would go and like physically stay in the space in the room of the temple and sleep there, hoping that you would have like a vision or encounter with God. Um, and this is true in lots of cultures. I mean, in, in Native American cultures, even often in the, in the United States, this would happen in like caves or these kind of holy places or on a holy mountain where you'd go on pilgrimage and when you became, you know, of, when you turned of age and became a boy or becoming a man or whatever. So, so incubation. So Samuel is lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, meaning God spoke. Samuel answered, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I didn't call you, go back and lie down. And so he went and laid down. Again, the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call, go back and lie down. Verse 7, this is key. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. So that's really interesting because he's hearing a voice, whether that's audible, whether it's in a dream or whether it's in some kind of mystical vision, he's hearing something, he knows he's being called, but he actually doesn't even recognize the voice because he thinks it's Eli. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Um, We'll talk about this in a few minutes, but in scripture, that phrase, the word of the Lord, when we hear the word of the Lord, we often think scripture. Um, Even when like a person preaches or sometimes on a church service, they get up and go, the word of the Lord for today from First Chronicles, and, and they read scripture. But in scripture, the word of the Lord rarely actually means the literal scripture. It means God speaking, okay? So the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli said, told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling, as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And then Samuel receives this word, uh, and it's actually pretty harsh. It's a word of judgment on Eli for failing to basically uphold his commitments as priest. And um, which is another interesting thing. Every time God speaks, it's not always happy, encouraging, right? Sometimes it's it's judgment. Sometimes it's conviction. Sometimes it's the Lord correcting. So, um, okay. So that's our starting point, First Samuel, and. I think a few things are interesting in there. I think this idea of incubation of Samuel Samuel going and sitting in the place where he's expecting God to speak. You know, he doesn't yet know what the Lord's voice sounds like. He's never encountered God in like a tangible way in his body. Um, but he's expecting God to speak. He did not yet know. And then the Lord's presence comes. His presence is there in the room. Again, it's not, you know, we could 
talk all day and all night until we're blue in the face about was God literally there? Was it a body? Was it a vision? Was he asleep? Was it a dream? But the underlying fact is God is initiating and breaking into our world to communicate, right, with Samuel. And, and then I think it's also really important that Eli's instruction to him is to posture himself in submission to the voice, okay? So I think that's a really big one as we, um, pract- if we want to get practical and in diving into hearing God's voice. So, um, okay, so what I'm going to do is outline, I think, three things that I think are challenges for us in the modern age to actually hearing God's voice. And then two ways that even when we try, I think sometimes we like miss it or manipulate or try to tame God down to hear what we want. And then we'll talk a little bit about Romans 8 and we'll wrap up. Cool. So three, I think the three biggest challenges, um, if we grew up, if we're, if we're too, too churched, so if we grew up in church, grew up in Sunday school, grew up getting dragged to the Sunday morning gathering, um, and in that context, I think we get taught and absorbed often, depending on your background and tradition, that the Word of God is Scripture, right? And it becomes very literal, and I think there's a lot of good reasons for that. I think the intention is to try and make, make Christianity right uh, safer, and more consistent. We want orthodox teaching. Um, When everyone starts saying, oh, I hear God, that's where like cults form, right? So I think there's kind of this aversion to the subjectivity and the riskiness and the messiness of inviting people to hear God or inviting people to be led by the Spirit. And it's much safer to just trust Scripture because it's written down and it doesn't change, right? but any of us who have lived a little life, who've engaged scripture in a meaningful way, we're very aware that just because it's written down doesn't mean it has one interpretation. And if we look at the different heritages of Christianity, it's very clear that people don't always agree on things that seem actually pretty obvious, right? Um, so this, the simple answer is just trusting that the word of Lord is scripture doesn't remove the risk. And I think there's just a fundamental reality. We have to accept that like following Jesus is a little risky. And, and sometimes we'll get it wrong. And sometimes we'll make mistakes and have to be humble and repentant and, um, and own up to those. So in scripture, God's word, again, is almost always the active, almost mystical presence of God breaking in through, again, whether it's a vision, whether it's a dream, whether it's an audible voice or a whisper or um, God speaking through a donkey or whatever it might be, Old Testament, New Testament. Fundamentally, God, God's, the word of the Lord is God act, actively speaking. And then secondly, the word of the Lord, the climax of the God story is Christ incarnate, is, is Christ being the word, right? The fundamental kind of ultimate way that God has spoken to creation, spoken to this world. Um, Okay, so I think that's the first hindrance. If we narrowly kind of put hearing God's voice into only literally from Scripture. Second one, I'd say we're too rational. And I think myself included, I like Jesus with a PhD a lot more than Jesus the mystical, wandering, homeless preacher of the first century. 
I like Jesus with a little bit of psychology, a little bit, uh, a little bit of cultural, you know, nuance and flair and some funny jokes. And um, we like Jesus modernized to our context, right? And some of that is good and okay. And we should, we can't help but try and reappropriate, you know, Jesus' teaching to the time and place that we live. This is our world. This is our life. This is our reality. So, and I think he will meet us in that. But, um, but I think often we read Jesus and then we hear what we want to hear from Jesus. We hear what fits into our modern rational um, categories of thought. And so you, we could go down the list of things that might be offensive or, or um, kind of debatable in the modern age, right? Of things like healing, things like prophecy, even this whole concept of hearing God's voice, it's, it does not exactly fit the scientific method, okay? It does not, it's not exactly reproducible and objective and, um, yeah, universal in that sense. So I think that's a big challenge we have. And then probably the biggest one, I'd say, is we are too busy. So we're too churched, we are too rational, and then we're too busy, and there's a reality that, I mean, I know we don't actually literally have like temples like Samuel did, but a lot, we're not spending 12 hours a day in the temple, right? We're not spending, we're, our time is so, so crunched that I think sometimes we, and maybe it ebbs and flows in and out of season, but we lose time for actually dwelling in the presence of God um, and being with him. And I think I fear that, Almost like Samuel, not only that maybe sometimes we don't know God, so he's speaking and we're not hearing, but I almost fear more that like we've had moments where we heard God speak and then now we've forgotten, like we've forgot God um, and we don't bring him along and, and so we're not hearing him anymore even though he is speaking. And I love, yeah, I, I love this quote from, this guy's really interesting writer, he's a... He writes for the New York Times, and he, he's an ex-Catholic. So at one point, he was a believer, and he, he writes this really interesting. He says, The reason we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow, dis, somehow disproved the unprovable, but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which it might endure or be reborn. If churches came to realize that the greatest threat to faith is not hedonism, meaning like sinful culture, sexual indulgence, all that, the sin categories, the greatest threat to faith today is not sin, but distraction. Perhaps they might begin to appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. And I think, man, the reality is we, we have too much of everything except time. And we, too many hobbies, we try to be too many things for too many people. And, and I think in many ways, this, this culminated very personally for like Matt and I with, we had, Matt and I have too many jobs and we have too many things we're trying to do. And, and Matt needed a sabbatical last year for three months just to like catch his breath because he'd been going so hard for so long. And um, so I think this is part of the invitation of even the fall scattered season is not to be involved in a hundred things but to have the Lord help lead you and know what am I to commit to so that my life is actually boundaried and healthy so that I can be following Jesus when I'm 60 70 
and not just burn out after a couple years and be like, ah, that was a nice thing, a cool community I was a part of for a while, but now I found a new hobby, a new passion, right? Um, so, time and space. Um, okay, so those I think are the three biggest hindrances. Ooh, we're doing good. Um, the two ways I think that even when we try, and I'll just share a couple personal things, even when we're trying to hear God, the way we like twist it and kind of manipulate it. So the first one, um, honestly, I'm like this quote. I love this quote. It's savage. It's by a Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. And I just feel like I look for any excuse I can to read this quote. Um, but this is, this is him in a letter of essay he published. This is like three, 400 years ago, um, 300 years ago. A letter he published called Kill the Commentators. Uh, and commentators like Bible commentators. So, and just note, uh, the tone of this is extremely, it's satire, it's extremely sarcastic. Okay? So this is what Kierkegaard says. This is what we Christians do to the Bible. The matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians, we are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? Herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the truth of the Bible, to ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close to home. Oh, priceless scholarship, what would we do without you? How dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is dreadful to be left alone with the words of the New Testament. And what, what he's poking fun of there and what he's getting at is the way we um, might read a story like Jesus interacting with the rich young ruler where he tells him, he asks him, hey master, I've kept the law, all the laws of Moses, what more should I do? And Jesus tells him to go sell, give, sell everything and give half of it to the poor, right? And he walks away sad. And, and we would read that and be like, well, right? It's, it's the way we kind of rationalize and justify maybe the radicalness of the New Testament and specifically the radicalness of Jesus and what God might be saying to us. Um, and we, it's almost, do you guys ever play with Play-Doh? Like, you have those little like plastic, like cruncher things. So you put the Play-Doh in and then you squeeze it and it like squirts out a tube in the shape of a star. I think what Kierkegaard is getting at is that's what we do to scripture. We, we take uh, the Beatitudes or we take the Sermon on the Mount and we squeeze it through what we want to hear and kind of mess with it, right? And change it so that it's palatable for our preconceived desires. And I think we could all tell stories of when we've done that. Um, okay, the second one. We kind of manipulate even God's voice, I think, in prayer. So this is funny. There's this one time, this was right before Katie and I moved here to Denver, and we had been saving up, you know, tons of money. I think we had like $5,000 saved up to move, which as a like real adult now, I'm like, uh, five grand. Um, but we thought that was like a lot of money. And we were at this big worship gathering with the missions organization we were with, and they were doing an offering. And, 
and it's a charismatic kind of, you know, hearing God's voice is like one of the values of this organization. And so when they take an offering, it's not just like, hey, we're passing around offering. It's like, hey, we're going to enter into prayer and everyone's going to ask God to speak. And then whenever God speaks, that's what you should give. And, and so I'm, I'm doing that. And I'm like very aware that in two weeks we're moving. And I, I literally remember closing my eyes. And I, for me, sometimes trying to hear God or, or prayer is easier if I like visualize things in my imagination. Um, rather than trying to hear a voice, I almost like I see a whiteboard and it's like God right on the whiteboard. Um, which is probably why I love whiteboards. Um, and, and I remember literally going, okay, God, how much should I give? And I closed my eyes. And it was like I was looking at a multiple choice test and it said A, 25, B, 50, C, 75. And and literally I was like, all right, Lord, you can speak, but here's my three options of what I'm going to respond to. And I'm not kidding you. In my imagination, a marker came in and added a zero on all three and then circled C. And I remember being like... (laughs) $750? $750? Like, are you kidding? Um, which is a lot of money to me now, but that was like astronomically more with, you know, inflation and immaturity back then, ten, five years ago. Um, so, and then I turn over to Katie and I'm like almost scared, but I'm kind of in the back of my head like, well, this is the benefit of marriage. You have two people. So if she heard something smaller, we'll go with hers. And, <laughs> and I can just pretend that that was like, you know, the pizza from dinner that was not sitting right. So, and I turned to her and I think she was, I think she had literally the same number or very Mine close. Added up to the same. I heard like a couple yeah, yeah, yeah. She heard like three different numbers and she was like, I don't know which one. And then we added them up and it was 750 and we were like, crap. Um, <laughs> And then she's like, yeah, and I kept hearing, I kept hearing God say, like, I just, this, the word inheritance, like, kept, like, your inheritance is, and, I, and, and I'm literally like, what, what does that mean? Like, we don't have any inheritance. And, and almost reluctantly, begrudgingly, we wrote a check and walked up and, like, put it in this envelope for 750 bucks. And I remember feeling like, it wasn't like, yeah, God, I'm generous. It was like, oh, are you kidding? Like, um, and I dropped it in and. And then the next evening, we get a call from Katie's parents, who I wouldn't say are exactly like, you know, ripping and roaring and like, yeah, we're hearing God every day, praying and just lost in the spirit. Like, that's not the type of personalities they are, okay? And Katie's dad calls up and he goes, oh, it's just the weirdest thing. Me and your mom were talking this morning and we were just thinking, you know, you guys are moving soon. And we, we just had the thought like, and, and one of our other daughters is going to grad school and she's transitioning and moving. Like, and we just said, what if we yeah. released some of your inheritance early and we wanted to give you all $10,000? And again, I'm not, I'm not saying that like there's some formula here that because we did that, like now this pinball moves and this is not prosperity gospel. Give a thousand, get 10,000. That's not what I'm saying. But like they might have called and said that anyways, right? They might have, maybe they were planning on doing that for weeks. I don't know. But it was a completely different experience because of that moment of obedience and submission and prayer and hearing that word. And then all of a sudden the next day, we're releasing your inheritance. And more important than even the money was this sense of awareness of like, oh my gosh, God is involved in our lives. Like he, like that was scary to put that money in there. And he's got it. Like... And, and that sense of meaning and purpose 
if we don't give that space to hear God's voice, we, we just live life and it's just... And we miss that. We miss the active presence of God. So that's how we try to sometimes, I think, manipulate God's voice. Like we give him options um, rather than actually being open to what he would want to say. Okay, and then transitioning this and kind of bringing it home to the New Testament. Um, so the early disciples, the authors of most of the books of the New Testament and all the followers of Jesus in that first generation, they had a very crazy task because they were fun, primarily culturally, religiously, they were Jews. And so they are trying to make sense of Jesus in light of Judaism. And, and I think we have like an, a beautiful example here connecting Samuel to Romans 8. So we have Peter, right, in Acts 2 and the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost. And people are going nuts. They're speaking in tongues and they're having visions and dreams and the Spirit's doing all this crazy stuff. And Peter looks back and he pulls on Joel chapter 2 and he goes, no, 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 this is what the prophet Joel said was going to happen. Just how Samuel used to have encounters with God in the night and hear God speak, have visions and dreams, and all the prophets after Samuel had those, that's going to be for all people, young and old, men and women. That's going to be what it's like in this new covenant era. And he's connecting that. And no longer is there a temple, like a physical building in place, but the believers will be renewed in their bodies. Their bodies will be cleansed and made holy through this Messiah. And now their bodies will be the temple, which means we live in 24-7 incubation. We live actively at all times in a position of time and space where we can experience revelation from God. And Paul is picking up on that in Romans 8 when he's talking about the contrast of life under the law versus life in the Spirit. And there's one verse in specific that I want to focus in on. And then we have one more story. Um, This is Romans 8. Right in the middle there, it's like the prettiest part of the whole chapter. So this is Romans 8, verse 14 to 17. Paul writes, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So again, those are references to Israel, led through the desert by the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire. So so for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God, the, the name for Israel. The Spirit you received, now in your body, the temple, does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And that word for testifies could be translated witnesses, touches, gives evidence, corroborates, confirms, and supports. So the spirit himself testifies, witnesses, touches, gives evidence, corroborates, confirms, supports with our spirit that we are God's children. So the spirit's fundamental role is to speak to us about our relation to God, about God's relation to us as father and our relation to him as son or daughter. And and I think as we go into this season of like, hey, let's all pray and hear God and see what we should do. I think it's really important to remember that if this is kept as the primary role of hearing, the primary functional role of the Spirit's activity of hearing God's voice is to call us back to the reality of our relational status before God. And if that's the foundation, then we can pray, hey, I think God said do this, do that, and we can totally botch it and screw it up, and we're all good still. 
and and I want I want this idea of hearing God's voice not to be like a restrictive like oh you have to do this but no it's a freeing thing it's it's the foundation of hearing God's voice that frees us to try and screw up and then fall right back in I mean that's the part of Kierkegaard's quote that I think he's wrong it's not it's not awful to fall into the hands of the living God it's it's the most gracious beautiful place to fall in all creation um, so all the other reasons, maybe we're seeking God in prayer, trying to hear him for insight, direction, choices, actions. But ultimately, this is the foundation, the functioning role of the Spirit. And um, so I'll close with this one story. Um, I like totally forgot this even happened until I was praying this week about teaching this. And man, it was probably, it was a handful of years ago. It was before we moved to Denver. Katie and I were home in Minnesota and visiting our old college campus. And we were just walking around campus, I think, I don't know, just being nostalgic. I, I'm not sure what our purpose was. And we, like most things in life, you know, you go back later and everything's way better than it was. And so there's like all these new buildings. And we're like, oh, that would have been nice. And there's this new fitness center. It's like massive, like thousands, thousands of square feet. Um, and so we're stumbling through this weight room being like, whoa, like electric machines are in here now there's not just like iron and dumbbells and um and the the weightlifting coach was in his office his name's rick coach rick myers and he's a, he's a big he's like six five he's a big college football player and i played we both but i played soccer in college and it's like the classic you know like field fairies and football and so like i wasn't exactly friends with coach myers like he would like write up these uh or he was supposed to provide weightlifting plans for the soccer team. And I swear he would like go on Google and just download a PDF and like hand them to us. It was like, he did not care about the soccer guys. He didn't respect us. It was fine. But, but, yeah. Katie, but Katie was an A teenager, so she actually knew Coach Myers pretty well. And so we stumble in and Katie's all bubbly and warm. And so all of a sudden we're sitting in his office talking for like a half hour. And, and I'm literally thinking like, when can we get out of here? And... And at one point, Rick starts sharing about some like stuff going on in his life. And his, they had a young girl who was in elementary school. And um, they were basically she was having panic attacks in school so severe that she would start throwing up um, like awful if you're a parent, I imagine. And, um, and we're like, we're talking about this and. I mean, normal, like, the nice Christian thing is just like, oh, that's so hard. I'm so sorry for you. Uh, well, all right, we got to go. <laughs> See you later. Um, and before we got up to leave, I don't remember which one of us, but one of, it was probably because me and Katie had just come back from, like, China or Cambodia, and we're all, you know, let's pray for healing. <laughs> and uh, so we're like, hey, one of us had the idea, can we pray for you, pray for your daughter for healing was the goal of the prayer time. And we enter into prayer, and it's just kind of this, like, you know, Lord, we don't even, we're not doctors. We don't know what's going on, but we just pray for Rick and his family. And, um, and we just ask that you'd like heal his girl, whatever's going on. And, and while we're praying, I'm not like trying, you know, to hear God or anything. I'm just, I have my eyes closed and I got my little like imagination movie projector thing on. And all of a sudden I see this like picture, this video in my head of, a, of like a child's face blowing one of those pinwheels you know like the little tinsely shiny ones and just blowing it and i and i and then all of a sudden a finger came in and like stopped it 
And so that's all I got. That was the revelation. The, and I wouldn't have even probably called it that at this point. I was like, oh, I don't know, some weird picture came in my head. Um, and we get done praying, and, and we're kind of about to leave, and I go, ah, oh, hey, one thing, I guess, I don't know if this means anything to you, but like, and I'm like looking at the ground because I'm not very confident that anything I'm about to say is going to make any sense. And I'm like, yeah, we were praying, and I just saw like a picture of a kid like blowing a pinwheel, and and I saw a finger stopping, and I just felt like the Lord wants to like, that, that the finger was like the Lord wanting to come just bring peace to what feels like chaos in your life. Um, and, I, and that's all he said. And I look up, and this like six foot five, 250 pound man is like weeping. And it took him a while to even speak. And he finally stammers out and he goes, when we're at the therapy office, every time my daughter comes in, they hand her a pinwheel and they let her blow it because it helps her relax and calm her. And I have no idea if our prayer that day did anything to actually heal his daughter. But we all walked out of that office like weeping. And we all walked out of that office very, very aware of our relationship to God and his activity and presence in our lives. And that is why, that's why, that's the only reason to this day I even like attempt to be in any form of like leadership or that's the only reason ministry, whatever that even means, that's the only reason I even do it. Because as I try to do that, and whether I screw up and botch it, or whether I luckily hit it on the head like that moment, the process of trying is where the activity and the presence of God and the life of God comes in. And now Christianity is not just a like creedal religion that we memorize and believe only the right things. It's a lifestyle and a way of living. It's a, it's a reality that we get caught up into. And it's a reality that's going on all around us all the time if we're listening. And so this invitation of this scattered season and fall is, is really, it's, it's to spark faith that, like, that our lives can be like that. And that's probably an experience like that is not going to happen every day. But I can tell you this, if we don't try, you will be 70 years old and it will have never happened. It will have never happened. So, as we go into the fall, this is, this is the invitation. The invitation is to posture ourselves in places where we could like let God actually invade our lives and the lives of those around us. And, and guaranteed, man, for that one story, I could tell you 12 stories of times that I went up to someone and was like, hey, I think I heard God say this. And they're like, I don't have a brother. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, uh, I guess... Whoops, right, big, big gulp, say, see you later. <laughs> Just walk away. Uh, I can tell you a, a hundred of those stories, too. But I'm telling you guys, it is worth the risk. It's worth the risk of trying. Um, so, hearing God's voice, that's the invitation. Um,